Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by True Bill. $5 here, 10 bucks there. It adds up. Monthly subscriptions often feel like a great deal until you completely forget about them. Get your subscriptions under control with Truebill. Go right now to truebill.com gold. It can save you hundreds of dollars a year. We've had a pretty good three-day rally in the stock market. In fact, Monday, which was the last trading day of January, really got the rally started and it basically mitigated the carnage in what otherwise was a horrible month for the stock market. And so that limited the damage. And I think it also sparked a bit of optimism that maybe the low was in. In fact, if you measure the rally just from Friday's close to Wednesday's interday high, we had about a 5% rise in the NASDAQ composite. But if you look at the riskiest, most beaten down stocks in the index, take a look at, let's say, the Kathy Wood Arc Innovation, that ETF had a 14% rally from Friday's close to today's high. And I think some of the rally was inspired by what was being advertised as bargain hunting. I saw a lot of commentary out there. A lot of analysts were opining about some of these stocks that have come down. Netflix, for example, I forget some of the others that had pulled back quite a bit from their highs. And this was prompting some analysts to claim that they were now bargains, that now they looked attractive on a valuation basis because they had pulled back considerably from the highs. And so it was a good time to go shopping for bargains. 
Well, that's a mistake that a lot of investors are going to be making over the next year or two at their peril. When you look at these stocks that were dramatically overpriced, and then when they're less overpriced, coming to the false conclusion that you're getting a bargain just because the price is lower. You're not getting a bargain. Maybe the stock is less overvalued than it was at the peak, but it's still overvalued despite the fact that it's down 50% because that's how overvalued it was. A lot of these stocks could drop another 50% from here and still be expensive. So you don't want to get suckered in to this rally. You don't want to buy the dips in these names. As I've been saying, you want to sell the rips because it's a whole new ball game now when it comes to the market. And some of the positive feelings were sparked by a couple of big NASDAQ names that came out with good earnings yesterday after the bell. Alphabet, formerly known as Google, beat and the stock was immediately up 10% in after hours. Of course, they announced a 20 for one stock split, which means absolutely nothing fundamentally, but it means a lot when it comes to people just chasing stocks and buying the stock because the price is lower when in fact, it's not lower. You just got more shares outstanding. So the price means nothing unless you look at it in relation to the number of shares outstanding. But still, in a big mania, people are buying stocks on anything. And so the news of a stock split is reason enough to buy, even though nothing fundamentally changes when a stock splits. AMD, though, also came out with better earnings. I think it was up about 13 or 14 percent after the close. Now, interestingly enough, both of these stocks closed significantly below their pre-market open highs. Google, I think, was up maybe 5 6% on the day, about half of where it was. AMD as well, it was only up about 5%. Again, well off its opening high and even further off its pre-market high. But really, what not as many people were talking about But what I think is far more significant than the beats by AMD and Alphabet, but the miss by PayPal. PayPal got obliterated. The stock was down 25%, maybe slightly more in regular market trading. As I'm recording this podcast in after hours trading, stock is down even more. But I think that is the more significant number because PayPal is one of the darlings of the stay-at-home type trades as people were staying at home and shopping online and paying for stuff using PayPal. And a lot of the stocks that have had crazy valuations have been those associated with payments, whether it's buy now and pay later with the afterpay model or any alternative payment rail. That's where the momentum has been going. And now you get a stock that disappoints and they take it out behind the woodshed and kill it. Also, significantly, PayPal is one of the darlings of the blockchain crypto trade. If you are a portfolio manager, you're an institutional investor, and you want exposure to Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, but you don't want to buy the currencies themselves. You want to invest in companies that are poised to benefit from crypto adoption and crypto being mainstream and more ubiquitous, right? If you want to get in on that and ride that wave, PayPal is one of the stocks that people have been buying to get crypto exposure. And now the stock is tanking along with all of the other crypto-related stock plays. They're all tanking as well as the cryptocurrencies themselves. 
And to me, this really shows a loss of interest in crypto-related investments on the part of the bigger investors, but also why isn't PayPal receiving a big boost in its earnings if it has incorporated crypto and Bitcoin onto its platform and Bitcoin really is changing the world and it's really expanding and everybody is using it? Why isn't that benefiting PayPal? Why isn't PayPal seeing a big boost in its earnings now that it's incorporated Bitcoin onto its platform? It's not doing anything because there's nothing there. The only thing people do with Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies is gamble with them. And so PayPal is not seeing a big boost in their earnings because they've incorporated Bitcoin into their business model and that's sending a signal to other businesses that hey there's no reason to incorporate bitcoin because it's doing nothing for paypal so all of these speculative trades are really unraveling and i think again that stock missing and how badly it got beat up is more significant because if you beat your earnings yeah you get a rise but nothing compared to how badly you get spanked if you miss. So the odds are really skewed. If you want to play in this casino and you want to buy some of these stocks, you better hope and pray that the earnings beat because if they miss, you're really going to get killed. In fact, I was watching on CNBC this morning. They were interviewing this woman who had gotten out of her Alphabet position and the host was saying, well, are you upset that you sold Alphabet seeing how much it's up today, which I thought was a really stupid question. I mean, obviously, stock's up 10%. You just sold it the other day. You got to be pretty upset that you sold it. I mean, what an asinine question to ask. But the interesting thing about her answer was that, well, you know, you can't win them all. I made a good profit in it, but at least I took the money that I got by selling Alphabet and I bought Meta, right? Meta was Facebook. Well, Facebook just reported after the bell today and that stock is now down 20% because she thought the earnings were going to beat and the earnings missed. You pay a high price in this market for missing earnings if you are one of these high-flying momentum stocks. And believe me, there are a lot of stocks flying a lot higher than Facebook. And if Facebook can be punished so badly by a miss, Imagine what could happen to some other companies. In fact, look what's also happening after the bell. Spotify came out. Their earnings missed. They're down 17% after the bell. Snapchat, they don't even report till tomorrow. I'm looking at shares of Snapchat are down 17%. They haven't even reported yet. They're just down in sympathy. In fact, across the board now, a lot of these high momentum, high flyers, former high flyers are getting completely destroyed in after hours trading. In the meantime, as I've been saying, look at the value stocks, plenty of value stocks, again, on the new high list today. The market is not getting killed. It's just these overpriced stocks that are getting killed because this is not really a stock market crash. This is a major rotation that's going on so that the overall market isn't crashing, but many individual stocks are. And that crash has just begun. They have a lot more to fall. But meanwhile, a lot of these other stocks, the value stocks, have a long way to go up because some of these stocks, even though they've gone up, they're still cheap because that's how cheap they were before they started this rise. For the same reason that these expensive momentum stocks, even though they've been cut in half, they're still expensive because they were so expensive before they got cut in half that they're still expensive. Basically, what I think is going on in the markets behind the scenes, you really have kind of two camps 
that are out there. You've got the stock market bulls and the bullish narrative basically is that inflation is going to come down kind of on its own, that the Fed was probably right. It was transitory. It's just that the transition took longer than they thought. These bottlenecks are going to clear up. Prices are going to come down. And the Fed is not going to have to be as aggressive as everybody thinks, that we're not going to get the four or five rate hikes this year and next year, that the surprise is going to be that the Fed is not going to have to hike as much as they're now posturing. And that's going to be a pleasant surprise for the market because it's not going to get as big a headwind from the Fed. Now, the bearish camp is that, wait a minute, inflation is much too high. It's 7%. It's rising. In fact, look at oil prices today. We almost hit $90 a barrel. I think we came to within 30 cents of $90 a barrel before we pull back and we close at around 88. So we had a pullback, but the high intraday was 89.72. And I mentioned on my last podcast, I thought we would take out the high this week. And sure enough, we have. And I don't think that 89.72 high is going to last for long. We are going above $90 a barrel. We're going above $100 a barrel. This is not an environment where we're going to see a reduction in inflation on its own. In fact, the prices paid numbers that we got in the ISM numbers that came out yesterday were much worse than expected. And in fact, look at Eurozone inflation. Year over year, inflation in the Eurozone, CPI up 5.1%. That is a record high since the Eurozone existed, since you had all of these countries sharing a common currency. The year over year core rate, not nearly as bad, but still 2.34%, far above the ECB's target. They are having a meeting, I think, tomorrow. So there's going to be some type of announcement. They're, of course, not raising rates, but we'll see what they say. But they really need to start talking about how they're going to deal with this inflation problem because they have been able to justify their 0% interest rate policy and their QE program on the pretense that inflation was too low, that they were too far below 2%. Because remember, their goal was to have inflation below, but close to 2%. And so when it was only 1.8, they said, well, that's not close enough. We need to get 1.9. Well, now you're at 5.1. You're miles above 2%. They're not even close to their objectives. So it'll be interesting to see what they're going to do. But while everybody is focusing on the fact that the Fed is going to have to fight inflation in the U.S., currency traders maybe are ignoring the fact that the ECB is going to have to fight it in Europe. And the fact of the matter is the ECB is more likely to actually fight than the U.S. They have a problem that is more likely to be attacked because I think Europe in general is in a better position, not in a good position, but not as bad a position as the U.S. to fight inflation. And they're going to have the bankers from the Bundesbank that are going to be putting a lot of pressure on the ECB to do the right thing. You're not going to get that type of pressure on the Fed. And in Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online master's of social work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. 
Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. In fact, if you look at what's been happening to the U.S. dollar, the dollar index has gotten clobbered these last couple of days. We were above 97. In fact, a couple of days ago, we were as high as 97.44. We closed today just below 96. I mean, 95, 98 or so is where we went out and we were lower intraday. Gold also has enjoyed a bit of a comeback. I said on my last podcast when gold was below 1800 that I thought there wasn't much downside because that's where the support was. And in fact, we are now back above the 1800 level. We're around 1807 on the price of gold. But the point I started to make regarding inflation is the bearish camp in the stock market. They recognize that inflation is a big problem probably bigger than what the Fed is admitting, and they're not going to be able to do anything about it with the rate hikes that they've already discussed. So the Fed is going to surprise the markets by having to be even more aggressive. We're going to have more rate hikes. We're going to have bigger rate hikes, and that is going to be bearish for stocks. That's the bear case. But there's actually a third alternative, and that's kind of the camp that I'm in, and it borrows a piece from both of those camps. So I agree with the stock market bulls that the Fed is likely not to raise rates as much as traders expect. But I agree with the bears that inflation is going to be higher than traders now expect. So that creates a third camp where we have an even weaker Fed but we have even higher inflation. And why is the Fed going to be weaker? Well, because the economy is rolling over. It's going to be stagflation, not a booming economy with inflation where the Fed has the ability to fight inflation, but a very weak economy where the Fed is hamstrung in its ability to fight inflation. Remember, Powell only stated that the Fed was willing to fight inflation because we had this great economy, because we had the strongest economy ever. We had this booming labor market. We had this roaring GDP. That's what gave him the courage to take on inflation. Well, when that turns out to be an illusion, well, the courage is going to go with it. In fact, take a look at the Atlanta Fed's initial estimate 
for Q1 GDP. Now, I went over the Q4 GDP numbers on the podcast, and I pointed out that about 71% of all of the growth was the result of an inventory build. And the reason I think that businesses are building inventory is because we're in a new inflationary time period. The price of goods is going up, so businesses may as well stock up now and invest in their inventory because it makes a lot more sense than keeping cash that is depreciating. You might as well buy the goods you need and buy them now because they're just going to be more expensive in the future and they may be hard to come by with all the disruptions to the supply chain and the problems with shipping. So businesses basically brought forward a lot of the inventory that they might otherwise have built up just in time over 2022 and it got shoved into the fourth quarter of 2021. Well, apparently the Atlanta Fed agrees with me and they've already ratcheted down their estimates for GDP. So their estimate as of now for growth in the first quarter of 2022 is 0.1%. That is 0.1% above zero, which means it's very easy to get that number reduced All it takes is some bad economic data points, like potentially a bad jobs number on Friday, and the Atlanta Fed can easily reduce that estimate to a negative number. And if Q1 GDP ends up being negative, then that could be halfway to a recession. And again, if the Fed raises rates for the first time in the third month of the first quarter, they're basically raising interest rates just as the recession is getting started, which again is unprecedented with Fed policy. They're normally not raising rates as recessions begin. They're generally raising rates deep into an economic recovery. And by the time they get to the end of the rate hiking cycle, that's when the economy tips into recession and they reverse course and they cut rates and they start the process all over again. But here we are on the cusp of the first tightening and we're also on the cusp of a brand new recession. Look at the data that we got today on employment. We got the ADP number for January. This is the first labor report for the new year. We're getting the government non-farm payroll report on Friday, but this is the private sector report. The consensus was for 225,000 jobs created in January, which was a big decline from what was originally reported as 807,000 jobs created in December. Now, first of all, that was revised down from 807,000 down to 776,000. But the big disappointment was in the January number because instead of getting a plus 225,000, we got a minus 301,000, a huge miss to the downside and indicating real weakness in the labor market. Now, we'll see if this persists again because we're going to get one more report, I guess, in theory for February before the Fed has to come up with the first rate hike in March. But if we continue to get more weak economic data and the inflationary data continues to strengthen, the Fed is going to be hard pressed to come through with this tightening. And in fact, I think at some point the Fed is actually going to argue that rising oil prices are a contractionary event. It's like a tax hike that is going to slow down the economy as consumers are forced to pay higher prices for oil. And therefore, we need some kind of stimulus to help 
offset that. We need to give the economy a boost because it's going to be dealing with the headwind of rising oil prices and how that's going to be sucking up a lot of consumer spending. In fact, I think PayPal, when it was explaining why it missed on its numbers, I think part of its explanation was inflation, that consumers were dealing with higher prices and because prices were higher, they weren't buying as much stuff and therefore sales volume was falling due to increasing prices and that was impacting PayPal's bottom line. Well, lots of other companies are going to be dealing with the same problem as the price of energy, the price of food, the price of rent, and all these other basic necessities. You can throw healthcare in there and other things that people need to buy. And once you finish buying all the stuff you need, well, there's not much left over for the stuff you just want. And there's a lot of people who are earning a living in that part of the economy. So if I'm right, on what's going to happen. If we're going to have stagflation, we're going to have a lot of inflation and a weak economy, this rotation into value makes a lot of sense because this is not going to be the type of economic environment that anybody is used to living in or anybody is used to operating in. The Fed has not embarked on a tightening cycle when the economy is rolling over. Usually, the Fed has to raise interest rates many times before the economy tips into recession. Here, all they do is talk about raising rates and we start moving into recession. They haven't even raised them yet. So we're at a very different type of economic cycle. Plus, we've got such a high rate of inflation that interest rates are never going to come close to being real even to the extent that the Fed raises them. So the reason you're seeing this big rotation is in a high inflationary environment, future earnings do not have nearly as much value as they once did. You have to discount these earnings into the present and the discounted present value of future earnings is a lot lower in a high inflation environment. And so these momentum stocks, again, are getting killed because the value of these future earnings is declining. And of course, there is no guarantee that these future earnings will even materialize. There is tremendous risk associated with these forecasts because these companies may never produce earnings. The market is going to start assigning a premium to companies that are already producing earnings right now and paying dividends right now and that have pricing power can raise their prices to offset the rising cost of living. Pick a number between one and 10. Whatever it is, it's probably not high enough for the number of subscriptions you have, including all the ones you've totally forgot about because most people have more subscriptions than they can recall. That's where Truebill comes in. It's the app that gives you the power to handle all your subscriptions. Truebill helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions that you don't need or simply don't remember you have. On average, people are saving thousands a year by using Truebill. See all your subscriptions in one place, keep the ones you want, cancel the ones you don't right from the app. And your Truebill concierge is there to help you cancel those unwanted subscriptions so you don't have to do it yourself. No talking to humans, no difficult conversations. Truebill has over 2 million users and has helped save them over 100 million. Like Becca L., who said, hands down, the best financial app I've ever discovered. In my first week, I opened up 187 in unused recurring subscriptions. I'm obsessed. I never want to manage finance without Truebill again. 
In fact, one of the things I like about Truebill is it constantly alerts me to large expenditures. Normally, they're from my wife. And it helps me keep her on her toes because she knows I'm getting an alert every time she spends a lot of money, which unfortunately is pretty much all the time. So start canceling your unused subscriptions right now at Truebill.com gold. Go right now, Truebill.com gold. It could save you hundreds a year. Of course, this rotation out of speculative momentum stocks into more defensive value stocks also includes the rotation out of cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin in particular, towards more defensive real stores of value like gold and silver, because Bitcoin not only doesn't pay any income now, it never pays any income in the future. It's all speculative. It's all on the come. And the cost of speculating is rising in an inflationary environment. And so fewer people are going to want to do it. And of course, once the momentum is gone, well, then what's the point in buying? Everybody was getting suckered in to the crypto space based on the momentum. It was the FOMO fear of missing out. Well, all you're missing out on now by not being in crypto is massive losses. So why would you want to participate in that? The best thing you can do with crypto is not to buy any. And then you miss out on those huge losses. In fact, I mentioned Facebook a little bit ago and their earnings were a big miss. But another news story that came out earlier in the week from Facebook is that they are giving up on their Libra project. In fact, I think they're selling off everything they've done. I forget who's buying it, but they're completely getting out of this idea of launching their own cryptocurrency. And if you remember when the whole Libra project was first launched, all of the Bitcoin promoters were like, this is great news for Bitcoin because more people are going to be dealing with crypto. And of course, when there's more crypto, well, there's more need for Bitcoin because Bitcoin is the reserve asset for crypto. It's digital gold. So if we have more people transacting in cryptocurrencies, that's just going to increase the demand for Bitcoin. It was spun as a huge positive story for Bitcoin. Well, if Facebook getting into crypto was positive, doesn't it stand the reason that their decision to abandon it is negative? Of course, you know, nobody from the crypto community is saying anything about that. You just bury your head in the sand and you ignore all the bad news. Like again, the collapse in Bitcoin related equities that are getting killed. The other thing that remains incredibly bearish for Bitcoin, and nobody is really talking about it, is that we are spending a lot of time below the neckline of that head and shoulders. As I'm recording this podcast, we're barely above 37,000. That neckline is around 40,000. In fact, ever since we crashed below 40,000, I don't even think we've been above it once. So we are holding below what used to be support. That is very bearish technical action for Bitcoin. Now, the next level of support is around 30,000. I think we're going to get down there pretty soon. But beneath there, it's an air pocket. There's not a lot of support between 30,000 and maybe 10,000. I mean, maybe you could argue there's a little bit of support around 20,000, which was a prior high. But if you look at a chart, to me, I don't think 20,000 is all that significant of a number at this point. I don't see a lot of support at 20,000. I think there's support lower, maybe somewhere between five and 10,000. I don't think we get more than a bounce off 20,000 before we get another big decline. Where I think 20,000 may be significant again is new resistance. So for example, 
If Bitcoin crashes down to 10,000 or lower, it may rally back up to 20,000. And then we start forming more resistance back at those old highs while we're consolidating the big decline and getting ready to roll over for some more losses. But I continue to encourage the people who are listening to this podcast not to wait for that to happen, just to recognize that the momentum has shifted and just don't hold in hope. You got to start selling. You know, a lot of the big crypto people have been selling because they're buying real estate in my neighborhood and they're paying incredible prices. I mean, ridiculous nosebleed prices. People are spending 30 million, 40 million dollars. And whenever I talk to people about who's buying their homes, it's almost always crypto money. It's somebody in some aspect of the crypto business that are buying these big houses and overpaying for them. And they don't really care. And they want to buy right now. They don't really care what the price is. Where are they getting the money? Clearly, they are unloading crypto. Meantime, you know, I'm talking to my son, Spencer, who transferred to Boston University and we moved him into an apartment and I wanted him to go out and buy some furniture, but he doesn't want to buy any furniture because he doesn't want to sell any Bitcoin because he wants to keep stacking sats and he's afraid to spend any of his sats on furniture. So he's basically going to live in almost an empty apartment. And he's also got, you know, a part-time job. He does make some money. He's making plenty of money where he can afford to buy some furniture. And I said, well, Spencer, you don't even have to sell your precious sats. Why don't you just buy some furniture with some of the new money that you're earning? And he's like, well, no, I could just be buying more sats. So, I mean, the crypto cult leaders have got my son so brainwashed that he thinks he has to put every penny he has into Bitcoin. Meanwhile, the whales are dumping it as fast as they can and buying in real assets. They're diversifying into real estate and other things. They're not worried about selling tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of Bitcoin, yet you have all these young kids around the country, around the world maybe, who are afraid to sell even a Satoshi. They're so afraid of missing out on bigger gains that they're hodling. Meanwhile, the people that already have bigger gains are getting out and they don't even care what they buy with the money because it's better than holding on to Bitcoin. Now, people might think, well, Peter, why don't I just buy my son some furniture? Look, I rented him an apartment. I'm covering the cost of his tuition. He's got to pay for something. And the fact of the matter is he's got all this Bitcoin or Satoshis. He's got a job. He can cover some of his own expenses. And if he doesn't want to buy his own furniture and not talking about expensive furniture, well, I'm not going to do it. In fact, I feel badly spending money to buy him furniture knowing that he's got this Bitcoin that's going to be worthless and he could use that to buy furniture instead because he doesn't want to sell any of his Bitcoin. I've got to pick up all of his bills. In fact, I joked with him. I said, you know, I'm going to launch a GoFundMe site for you so that people will send you some money. That way you can afford to buy some furniture because you refuse to sell any of your Bitcoin. And of course, he wouldn't let me do that. He said that would be embarrassing. I said, well, then buy some furniture. And it's not like I can't afford to buy him some furniture. It's the principle of the thing that he needs to buy some of his own furniture, but he can't do it because he doesn't want to sell his Satoshis. And this is what's going on. People around the country are holding on to these things. And this is the reason that they're not going down because you have all of these young kids who have made a lot of money on paper, but they haven't realized any of it. They're still living at home in their parents' basements, afraid to sell a Satoshi because they don't want to miss out on the moonshot.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, some of these kids have been borrowing. Some of these kids are levered up. They've taken out loans and they've gone and bought things. But what's going to happen when Bitcoin crashes below 30,000 and then hits 20,000 and now we got the margin calls? I mean, this is going to be a complete bloodbath in Bitcoin. Today is Groundhog Day and Puxatani Phil came out. Apparently, he saw his shadow. And so that means we got six more weeks of winter. Of course, none of that matters to me. I've got endless summer here in Puerto Rico, but you know what? It's going to be an endless winter for crypto because the last crypto winter was nothing compared to the long crypto winter that lies ahead. Now, while Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are going down, one thing that is going up is the U.S. national debt. And between my last podcast and this one, we made another dubious milestone the U.S. national debt is now above $30 trillion. In fact, we've gone from $20 trillion to $30 trillion in under five years. So that's an average of more than $2 trillion added to the national debt each and every year. In fact, I think we're going to hit $40 trillion in under three years because right now we're running up about $3 trillion a year in red ink. But this is during supposedly a strong economy because sometime over the next three years and maybe even this year the U.S. economy is going to slip into recession and these budget deficits are going to explode again and so we're going to make a beeline for 40,000 pretty quick in the national debt but again that really doesn't tell the full story of the national debt because first of all that's only looking at what the U.S. government owes it ignores what the state governments owe and what the local governments owe because everybody, you know, you live in a state, you're responsible for the debts that your state incurs. You're also responsible for the debt that your county incurs. And all of these various government entities are looking at the same taxpayer to repay their debts. So you really have to aggregate all of the government debt to figure out what the average American is on the hook for In fact, the debt-to-GDP ratio, if you just look at the $30 trillion national debt, it's 128% of GDP, but when you throw in another $3.2 trillion of state and local debt, the total debt-to-GDP is 142%. That is a shockingly high number for a nation to be at where the government owes 142% of GDP, especially when the GDP is a bunch of fluff like ours. I mean, so much of our GDP is service sector. I think only 10%, if that, is for manufacturing. So we have a very small portion of our GDP 
related to producing real wealth. And you can throw mining in there and forestry and energy and construction, but most of our GDP is just the service sector. And you really have to look at the debt in relation to the wealth producing portion of the GDP. And there it's an even bigger number. But of course, the biggest number of them all is when you look at unfunded liabilities, because that's what gives you a better picture of the true financial health of the United States. And you have massive unfunded liabilities for the Social Security, Medicare, all that. You take all of these contingent liabilities. And again, the difference between an unfunded or a contingent liability and the funded liabilities is the national debt is where the U.S. government has borrowed money and has committed to repay what is borrowed, right? So that's the funded debt. But the contingency liabilities is not where the government has borrowed money, but where the government has committed to make payments, right? The government has committed to guarantee student loans. The government has committed to guarantee mortgages, right? So they didn't borrow any money, but they're on the hook if a homeowner who borrows money defaulted or a student who borrowed money defaulted. So that's a contingent liability. That's real. A normal business would have to list that if it was doing an asset and liability balance sheet. It would have to have a line item in there and disclose those contingent liabilities because they're real. And you can kind of figure out based on statistics what that really translates into. Because yes, all of the student loans you guarantee won't default. All of the mortgages won't default. But you can have an approximation based on past statistics, what number will, and then you could assign a value to that contingent liability. But then you have other types of contingent liabilities like government pensions and Social Security and Medicare, where the government has committed to make payments in the future. It didn't borrow the money, so it's not repaying a loan, but it's made a promise. It's made a commitment to a voter or some special interest group. And so these are liabilities of the federal government. And so if you add up all the unfunded liabilities, you're looking at another $164 trillion. So if you take the unfunded liabilities and the funded debt, you're almost at $200 trillion. I mean, this is a massive amount of money. It is completely unpayable. So it's not going to be paid. And so what's going to happen? Well, it's going to be defaulted, either honestly or dishonestly. The honest way to default would be just not to pay. Right? The government just admits that it's broke and it doesn't pay. It restructures the debt. Of course, it's not going to do that. No one in Washington is willing to be honest with creditors. So the other way is through inflation. And that's what's going to happen. We are going to inflate this debt away. And it's that realization that's going to cause a run on the U.S. dollar and a run on U.S. treasuries. Because a lot of people, you know, the MMTers that are out there, they're convinced that, hey, we don't have to worry about credit quality. The U.S. government is never going to default because it can print money. It borrows in its own currency. And so our lenders are never going to be concerned no matter how much debt we have. But they will be concerned because they realize that we can't repay the debt honestly through taxation because there's just not enough money available from the taxpayer. When you've got the federal government and the state and local governments all looking for the same taxpayer and that guy is broke, how are you going to repay this debt? You can't. It's going to be repudiated through inflation. And there's a big difference for the creditors between getting repaid honestly out of taxation and getting paid dishonestly through inflation. 
And if you think it's going to be the latter, then you want to get out of Dodge. And that's exactly what's going to happen. Look, I'll give everybody a very simple example so you have an idea what I'm talking about. Think of a simple society where there's one taxpayer and there's one creditor and then there's the government. So the government borrows $100 from the creditor and the taxpayer is on the hook to repay that $100 loan. Now, the government can raise taxes on the taxpayer when the loan is due and take the $100 from the taxpayer and give it to the creditor, in which case the creditor gets his money and the taxpayer has to pay the creditor on behalf of the government. And so that money is transferred from the taxpayer to the creditor. No problem for the economy. I mean, maybe it's a problem for the taxpayer because he had a hundred bucks and the government taxed him in order to repay the lender, but the lender got his money back at the expense of the taxpayer whose taxes repaid the debt. Now, what if the government doesn't want to raise taxes on the taxpayer? because he's afraid that they're not going to get the vote if they have to raise taxes. They don't want to take this $100 from the taxpayer. He needs the money. So what if the government just tells the lender, you know what? We don't have the money. We don't want to raise taxes or he can't raise taxes. We're just not paying you, right? Okay, well, now the taxpayer keeps his 100 bucks, but the creditor is out $100. The note goes to zero. The government defaults, right? So the creditor is out money, but the taxpayer gets to keep his money. Well, the third alternative is the government just prints up the $100 and gives it to the lender. So now the lender has $100 and so does the taxpayer. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody walks away whole. They don't because the supply of goods and services in the economy hasn't changed. So what happens now is prices, let's say, double because you've doubled the money supply from $100 to $200. And so now prices have to double because you have twice as much money bidding on the same quantity of goods. Now the taxpayer, when he goes to spend his $100, well, he only gets $50 worth of stuff. So he's taken a loss. He didn't lose as much as if the government had taken his entire $100 and given it to the creditor, but he lost half his money, even though the government took nothing. But now the creditor, when he gets paid the $100, he didn't really get his money back because now prices have doubled. So he can only buy $50 worth of stuff. Now he got more money than he would have got had the government just defaulted and given him nothing. But because the government didn't do that, they inflated, he still gets something, but he's lost half of his purchasing power. And that is a real loss. And that loss is going to be factored into the willingness of U.S. creditors to continue to hold U.S. treasuries. So the people who think that we don't have to worry about our credit credit quality. We don't have to worry about how much debt we have and we never have to pay the money back. We're going to start to worry. And, you know, I've always gotten a big kick out of this idea that we don't have to pay this money back because whenever I talk about how big the debt is and how it's unpayable because it's so enormous, what I always hear from your typical economist or investment analyst is, well, What do you mean? We don't have to repay the debt. We never have to repay the debt. We just keep borrowing more money. Well, how can that be? I mean, if we don't have to repay it, it's really not debt. I mean, we're really not borrowing if we don't have to pay it back. And the thing is, if it's true that we can borrow money and never pay it back, what kind of idiot is loaning us the money if we're never going to pay it back? Because the important part about making a loan 
is getting paid back, right? That's really what it boils down to. Anybody can make loans. The key is to get your money back. So that's the real important part. So if we're out there saying, hey, we're borrowing all this money and we're never going to pay it back, why are other people willing to lend us all this money if we tell them right off the bat, we're never going to pay it back? Now they say, well, the lenders are still going to get their money back because we're going to borrow from new people to repay the old people. So in other words, the reason we can keep on doing this is because it's a giant Ponzi scheme. But again, if it's a giant Ponzi scheme, why do people willingly participate? It's because they don't realize it's a Ponzi scheme. They think they're going to get paid back. When they realize they're going to be paid back in monopoly money, they're not going to want to lend. In fact, they're not going to want to hold on to these treasuries. And the only buyer is going to be the Federal Reserve. And that's when the printing press is going to overdrive and the dollar is going to fall through the floor. Mm-hmm.